The Chris Sheeran Show, only on YesNetwork.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Chris Sheeran Show here on YesNetwork.com and iTunes Podcast. Don't forget, you could download this, subscribe to it uh, for free, 99, and it goes to your smart device, and it makes you very intelligent. With Lou DiPietro, I'm Chris Sheeran, and joining us in our leadoff spot this week, we are full of guests. We're also full of something else, but this week we're full of guests, and our first guest, never been a leadoff guy in his life, John Flaherty. John, how are you, buddy? I am great, guys, and I thank you at this advanced stage in my life that I finally am leading off. It's never happened before, it'll never happen again, so thanks for making it happen today. You'll always hey, lead n- off this Number podcast. nine is the second leadoff Yes, exactly. Come on. Let's- Come on. I love man. your attitude, Lou. I love your attitude. <laughs> All right. Uh, Flash, nothing really big happened in the world of baseball lately besides David Price uh, signing for the gross national product of a third world country. <laughs> uh, so let's start there. Now, it might be the market. This is where I want to lead this off. It might be the market price. And did Price deserve to get paid? Absolutely. Here's my question to you Clayton Kershaw got 30 a year, he was 25 when he signed that deal. Price signed a seven-year deal, and it's backloaded. So I believe it goes 30, 30, 31, 32, 32, 32. So the way it's set up, and he does have the opt-out, but the way it's set up, is this a good or bad deal for the Red Sox? Well, it's, uh, it's a good deal immediately. Um, you know, and I think that's the way everybody looks at this. You know, the Red Sox had to do something. Uh, David Dombrowski coming in there, making some big moves, bringing Kimbrell into the closer, and now you bring David Price. And I kind of laughed because Price was saying, you know what, he wanted to go back to Toronto. He loved it there. Everybody in baseball knew that Boston was going to, uh, you know, put this type of a contract out there and Price couldn't turn it down. So I guess to answer your question, I, I like it for the Red Sox the first couple of years. They get a top end, uh, the rotation starter. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, the last three or four years, how is it going to look? He, he's a power pitcher. Uh, his breaking stuff is secondary. It's not that great. Um, so if I was a Red Sox fan, I'd be happy about it for the next few years, but very concerned coming down the pike. That answer, Flash, actually kind of leads into what I wanted to ask you. And and you've gone through contract negotiations in your career. You know, you and your agent, you've, you've played Major League Baseball. You know how this game works. Listening to MLB Network Radio a lot, as I do, I forget who it was on there, but I was listening the other day after he got signed, and whichever analyst it was said, that kind of contract, that kind of opt-out, I think it might have been Jim Duquette, one of the Duquettes. He said, I would never do it. And here's my question with that. You mentioned this is a good deal for the first few years. And even if David Price opts out and walks away and goes somewhere else in three years, it's a three-year, $90 million contract for him. Great. The last four years of this are bad for the Red Sox either way, no? Because if he opts out because he's great, Either they have to pay him more now for a contract they already signed, or he goes somewhere else and hurts them. If he's not great and doesn't opt out because, well, I'm not going to get $32 million, then they're on the hook for $127 million for a guy who's clearly in decline. Am I, am I wrong in this thinking, or, or is, there, well, is there a middle ground there? I, I agree with you that if he does not opt out and he stays, it's a bad deal for the Red Sox You know, the last four years. The, the problem is, and it's not a problem, it really shouldn't be, a lot can happen in three years. David Price might go out there. He might be fantastic for all three. And then the Red Sox have a tough decision. I don't look at it as a tough decision. If he wants to opt out, you have the ability not to re-sign him. The Yankees had that same opportunity with Alex Rodriguez. 
or I'm sorry, with Chief Sabathia, and they decided that they re-signed him. And, you know, obviously coming down the pike is probably not the greatest financial package for the Yankees. So uh, to answer your question, Lou, I think if price pitch is great for three years, the Red Sox will look at it and say, you know what, if you want to opt out, thank you very much. We got back to what you would expect would be some respectability uh, with some of the players that they're bringing in. They just got to show some discipline and not try to re-sign him at an advanced age. And, you know, obviously, like I said, a lot can happen in three years. Flash, this guy is dynamic. I mean, that's Captain Obvious, uh, me over here, saying that. He, he is pretty much, in my eyes, the main reason. You could talk all you want about the Blue Jays' ridiculous lineup. I think Price was the catalyst going up there to Toronto to start turning things around for them and winning that division, especially the trickle-down effect he had on the rest of the rotation. He really put the onus on the other guys. Uh, but there's another side of this, uh, and that, that's his postseason record. Now, look, I, he's a dynamic pitcher. He's one of the best in the game. I looked up his numbers at Fenway. Uh, as a lefty, and pretty fantastic. We all know lefties get killed at Fenway. They can't protect the monster. That's that's just the way it goes. He's six and one with a one ninety five ERA and eleven starts at Fenway Park. I mean that is ridiculous for a left handed pitcher. But are there? A, look, I know Dombrowski went out and he got an ace pretty much. But do you waver at all by his postseason experiences there? Oh, it's definitely a concern. My my biggest concern, or a bigger concern, you know, David Price has pitched in Tampa Bay, and, and I'm very familiar with that market. There's not much media there. Pitched in Detroit. I'm familiar with that market. It's a little bit more advanced, but really not crazy. Toronto, uh, very under the radar, you know, media-wise. Um, he's going into the, the juggernaut right now. You know, you can talk New York. You can talk Boston. Boston is a vicious market if you are a high-priced, free agent pitcher coming in there and you don't get off to a good start, uh, it's not going to be very pleasant. That would be my biggest concern for David Price. The postseason stuff, like you mentioned, that's a concern down, down, down the road a little bit. I mean, obviously he gets there. If he gets a few more opportunities, you expect him to change those numbers. Um, but the bottom line is, and you mentioned what he did in Toronto, and you know, when you're a teammate and you have somebody like that who goes out there once every five days you, you don't relax, but you have so much confidence. We are going to win today. Who's pitching tomorrow? And that's your attitude. You're, you don't have long losing streaks. Uh, it's a difference maker. So I am very, very curious, interested, all of the adjectives about what he is going to do in Boston in that market when there was rumors that he wasn't really a big fan of going there. The money changed his mind, obviously. Uh, he better get off to a good start because it could get pretty vicious up there pretty quick. I like to look inside the numbers a lot, as Chris well knows, Flash. And, you know, those numbers at Fenway are great, but then you have to realize that over the last four years, he's done that against the Red Sox team because he's pitched for not the Red Sox. So every start he's made at Fenway has been against the Red Sox. And they won the World Series one year, and in the other three, they could barely win a series most of yeah. the time. So... How much even more of that is skewed? Okay, he's got great numbers at Fenway Park, but he hasn't been pitching to, uh, let's say, I don't know, he's a lefty, so you're going to see a lot of righty batters. He hasn't been pitching to Alex Rodriguez at Fenway Park. He hasn't been pitching to Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion at Fenway Park, and on and on. He's been pitching to a Red Sox lineup that, quite frankly, hasn't been optimal for much of the last four or five years. 
Yeah, it's a good point, Lou. And, uh, you know, you, you could break these numbers down any way you want to. And Dave Dombrowski had a mission that he wanted to go get Price, and obviously he was going to overpay for it, and he did it. My thing with the visiting player coming into Fenway Park, you pitch there once, maybe twice a year, and then you're gone. You know, the difference of being a home player is you give up a couple of, of weak fly balls that hit off the green monster or get over the monster, and then you start playing mind games with yourself. I got to keep the ball away from the green monster. I got to pitch differently. And you get away from a lot of the things that you have done in your career to make yourself successful. You guys have watched David Price as much as I have. He loves to pitch inside against right handed batters. Will that change? You know, I hope it won't because it's made him very successful. But if you get a couple of jam shots off that wall or over it, you start changing your perspective a little bit on pitching in your home, home stadium. And that's going to be the fun part to watch for everybody. Will he be able to go up out there and still put those numbers that he did as a visiting pitcher as a home pitcher? Yankee fans' reactions uh, on social media were uh, all the hijinks and hilarity I needed for the next month uh, (laughs) for the rest of the year. Um, We heard from our own Jack Curry on Yankees Hot Stove uh, this past Monday, uh, right before Price was signed. He basically said, you know, he's talked to Brian Cashman and the Yankees are not going to have one of those bazooka-type deals that Dombrowski just pulled off. But Yankee fans everywhere, after Price was signed, said Cashman basically has to step up and, you know, they want Granky, they want this one, they want that one, he's got to do something. That's not the Yankees' plan that they've had in play, you know, all along. This team and Lou and I have talked about this ad nauseum on the podcast, they're going to try to build from within. And that's been the M.O., uh, at least. We don't know if that's gonna, that might change. But, Flash, I don't think it's going to change. Do you? No, I don't think so, Chris. And, you know, remember the, uh, the word I used before with Dombrowski or the Red Sox discipline? It sounds like the Yankees are very disciplined right now. Uh, you know, Hal has not uh, given the, the go-ahead to spend money. Um, you know, and if you look at this team, yeah, you would love to have a guy like Granky. Everybody would. Um, you know, but there, there's just, I think this team is what it is going into next season. You got the older players that you're hoping to get some good years from. You're hoping to get out of some of these contracts. And then you start seeing some of the kids uh, become everyday players. But, you know, from a rotation standpoint, everybody would love to have a guy like Granky. But, the Yankees have a lot of starting pitchers that have shown, and I, I emphasize this word, shown that they can be really productive. And with that, there's a lot of question marks with everybody in that rotation, maybe except Severino, believe it or not, you know, the young kid who did so well the second half of the year. So with all of that being said, I applaud the Yankees and their discipline. Uh, their farm system is starting to produce. Uh, Yankee fans want it now, and they, they want Cashman to react. I don't think he's going to do it. Uh, and they're going to take their chances with the club that they have, and then maybe after next season they go out and make a big splash, but we'll see. Let me, let me throw this out there, Flash, just as a, as a sort of piggyback to all of that. N- you know, Next year's free agent market is a lot, a lot weaker. Let's be fair. It's a lot weaker in a lot of areas. Could be why Colby Rasmus, a Matt Wieters, a Brad Anderson took qualifying offers, figuring they can build off what they did this year. And even if they maintain it, they're in a better position next year than they would have been this year. Maybe not so much Weeders because catching is is thin everywhere, but he had had an injury-plagued season, so you get that. Point being, we talk a lot about the market, and Chris and I have talked about how last year, you know, Pablo Sandoval was the top third baseman on the market, and he got what the Red Sox gave him because he was the guy, and you had to pay to get him. 
And Chase Headley maybe got what he got, which may or may not be more than he was worth in some eyes because he was the next best guy and the best was off the board. So now it's we got to get him or else. With all of the pitching that's available on the market with the big three and then the big three in the next tier and the big three and on and on and on and on. With all this money that's being doled out, with Jordan Zimmerman sort of setting the floor for the, the second tier, so to speak, and Price and probably Granke getting what they're getting, and Samar just saying he's got a $100 million offer and yada, yada, yada. The way that the Orioles swooped in on Ibaldo Jimenez a couple years ago, if somebody like a Mike Leake or somebody like a, um, Scott Kazmier or somebody in that, in that vein is out there late in the winter, is it worth the Yankees saying, all right, we, we've – We've kind of not spent money. We've kind of stayed the course, but we're going to get a bargain on this guy and think of the long term and see the forest through the trees as opposed to, well, we don't need to spend it this year, so we'll just wait till next year. Well, it depends on what that bargain is. I mean, is it something that, you know, is going to be like a cashmere who's not going to put you over the top, but you've got to spend a little bit more than you want to? I mean, these are all things that, you know, I think the Yankees have done a really good job of bringing in guys like Abaldi, and all of a sudden he looks like he might be able to give you 15 wins, you know, and you bring in to make some trades for some younger players. I think that they, they've had so much success lately without going with the big free agent or even the middle-of-the-road free agent pitchers at an advanced stage that they're, they're trying to think a little bit more outside the box and take some chances on some younger guys uh, and hope that it works out. Now, with all that being said, if you've got, you know, the middle of February – and you have a guy like Leak, or you have a guy like Kazmir, and they're desperate. They got it. They want to get to get to spring training. They want to get on a club. Uh, obviously, it makes sense if, if financially it works out for you to take a chance on a guy like that. But Yankees are in a position right now. They can kind of sit back. Uh, they're not dictating the market on any of these big free agents. They can kind of wait and see how the whole thing plays out. I'm sure Cash is going to be doing a lot of things next week at the winter meetings. Um, but they're, they're kind of in that sit back and let's see if we can maybe scour the minor leagues or, you know, maybe some of these, these back end of the rotation guys who are young have shown some promise and maybe you can get one of those guys on a, on a minor deal. So we'll see what Cash has in mind. Yeah, I, you know, maybe my 20 years ago, the younger me, um, the fan in me, would want the Yankees to, uh, you know, step in like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Terminator and just blow away what the Red Sox just did. But the forty-plus-year-old me is in don't, the it, says don't pull a Kagawa when no, Vice K Matsuzaka no, gets a big deal. Right. right. It, it's I'm in the camp. Hey, Lou and I have talked about this over and over and over again. This team is about to hit the reset button with a lot of big contracts about to come off the books and a lot of kids down on the farm. I'm not saying they're going to make a difference, but can make a difference. One of them already has in Greg Bird. Gary Sanchez just had a hell of an Arizona Fall League. You know, this is something that the Yankees have been setting up for quite some time now. I love the plan. And this is my thought, Flash. Why would you go after one World Series championship, which would be great, when you can go after another potential dynasty? And that's my thought on this. It's always has been, and I don't see how anybody could have any other thought process. I really don't. Well, I'll tell you what. When you, when you look at some of the, the teams that are in the postseason now, the Kansas City Royals, the Blue Jays obviously made some splashes with their trades. But, you know, there's a different way of doing business now. And you go out and you sign that big-time free agent or a few of them, it doesn't always guarantee a World Series winner like it did for the Yankees in 09 when they brought in Sabathia, Teixeira, A.J. Burnett. I, I think the Yankees are in such a good place right now because you have veterans 
who are able to kind of hold down the fort, and you're bringing up young players who are getting experience. Uh, they're learning from the veteran players. They're getting comfortable is not the right word, but, you know, they're, they're getting their feet wet at the major league level. And like Bird, Severino, they're having some success. So all the Yankee fans that want Brian Cashman to go out and sign a big free agent are probably the same Yankee fans that have been clamoring for young players to come through the system and get a chance recently. So I think they're in a good place right now that they have some youth coming up. They have some veterans finishing out contracts. Um, and a lot of things happen, and you guys know this better than me, before we even get to spring training, during spring training, and some of the injuries that happen, and we've seen them last year, uh, you're going to have some young guys getting a chance at the big leagues this year. And if the Yankees do what they did last year, you know, get to that one-game playoff or you know, get a chance to move on, it, it's a very productive year. So I, I applaud Cashman and the front office for their discipline. You mentioned 2009 with that group, with CC Tex and A.J. Burnett. In the last five years just themselves, the Yankees have kind of portrayed both sides of that point, where in 2009 yeah. they brought themselves a World Series, but then two years ago with Ellsbury and McCann and, you know, on and on, Tanaka, they didn't even make the playoffs. And Toronto, you know, made the big splashes a couple years ago. It took three years and two more trades for two even bigger players to get them to the playoffs. And the White Sox went on a bonanza last year, and how did they finish again? So, right. you know, there's both – I, I can see both sides of the point. When it comes to, to lesser things in terms of free agency, the non-tender deadline was yesterday, and there were a lot of interesting names, especially in, in, in things that may fit the Yankees that were, that were thrown out there. Um, my biggest one, and I want to see how, how you feel about this, being a catcher, the Yankees' catching situation is very fluid. McCann's a starter. Sanchez is the star in waiting. Austin Romine's kind of in the middle. Tyler Flowers was non-tendered by the Chicago White Sox. Hit lefties better than he did righties last year, which is sort of what John Ryan Murphy did. Is someone like him or someone like you know, Pedro Alvarez is available who the Yankees haven't had an Eric Chavez type since Eric Chavez, and if something happens to Chase Headley, who knows what happens. Are there guys in that group that the Yankees might now look at and say, you know what, we can get these guys for a year, two years, somewhere in the arbitration, and use them to plug these holes until guys are ready as opposed to going out and finding the big guns? Well, I'll talk about the catching situation more because, you know, you guys know that I pay attention to that probably more than any other position. And, you know, losing John Ryan Murphy, and not losing him, you pick up a good player in Hicks. But, you know, that, that to me was a, was a significant loss. And, you know, what he meant to that team, not only on the field, but, you know, with the pitching staff in the clubhouse, you could tell that uh, his teammates loved him. And it was a big part of what they were doing. Uh, Lou, you bring up Flowers, and, and I, I love that name. I love what he does behind the plate. Uh, when you're in Chicago, they talk about how he works a pitching staff. Got kind of a long swing. You know, he's a hit-or-miss type guy. But, you know, as a backup or somebody who's going to split time, I don't look so much at the offensive part of it. I, he's got a great reputation for working a staff. I think he would fit in very nicely. I think Austin Romine would fit in nicely as a backup. But, you know, Sanchez, I think the, the future is so bright for him. I don't know if, if him being a backup and trying to find him at bats uh, is going to be the best situation for him. So um, I love the way you're thinking, Lou, though. You're thinking outside the box a little bit, which is exactly the way the front office for the Yankees thinks. Uh, Tim Nearing now taking over for Billy Epler. He, he's a great evaluator of talent, especially young talent. Um, he kind of sees some things that a lot of other people don't see. Uh, so I think with that backup position or maybe giving you know, McCann 110 games, uh, you're looking for somebody for 52. I think Flowers would be a perfect fit. 
We uh, we've had some great weather. Have have you uh, been out uh, hitting the crooked stick at all? You know what? I went out a couple of weeks ago, and then in my mind I shut it down. And I got a text today from one of my buddies who wants to go out there tomorrow, 52 degrees, and it's not going to be windy. And I had to shut them down. My golf game is done really? for the year. I will I will break out the sticks in spring training in Tampa, maybe at Old, old Memorial, one of my favorite courses. That'll be the next round that I play. I got to play. Now I got to get in on this this year. The last couple of years down in Tampa, guys have been like, "Oh, we're going golf. We're going golf." I'm like, I got to get in on this one of these years. I you just, guys would probably kill me, though. I just wish I could go to Tampa. <laughs> you know what, Lou? If you, if you bring your wallet with you, you probably wow. play golf with us. Shots fired. Oh, boy. Because <laughs> I know how much this podcast pays you guys, so I want to get a little bit of that money because I don't get anything. Yeah, well, we hey, need, you, can, we you need... can subscribe to it for free 99. Yeah. And <laughs> we don't see the 99 part of it, I can tell you that much. And we need, uh, we need some kind of money because my chair, I just put my arm on the, on the armrest and the armrest just fell off. So... Yeah, you get a bill for that. So that's what the tape was for. Yeah, pretty much. Um, well, you know, I'm kind of disappointed that you're not going out tomorrow and hitting them, man. Well, I, I, how about this? How about the two weeks ago? How did you hit them when you were out there? Uh, the first five holes were terrible, and then I, I rallied at the end to, uh, to gain some respectability. So yeah, it was all good. boy. Oh boy, good job. Usually I'm the opposite. Thanks. I'm terrible for the first 15 holes, and then the last three I gain respectability, and that's what keeps me going out there. It keeps you bringing back. Brings yeah, you back. I, I'm confident. Like, I parred my first hole the last time we went out, right? And mm-hmm. then about the sixth hole in, I got my first snowman, and then I had a couple of DNFs. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came back on the 10th. <laughs> yeah. That was quite a round you put together in that one. Would, you went from, from Arnold Palmer to, to Hacker to... All right, this might work. Oh, uh, Palmer's a stretch. Uh, how about uh, how about uh, what's his face? Jim Palmer? No, the who was the one they called the walrus? <laughs> Craig Stadler. Yeah, Craig Stadler, without all the extra poundage. Well, you had the hair going on too. You had the hat. I so did. I had that. And I, I had the make believe hair hat. That's quite a sight to see. Yes, it was. Boy, this thing is really taking a turn, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? We had a lot of fun at that umpire benefit we went to uh, a couple, like a month ago. And I told you at that benefit, we need to get you on the podcast more. And I'm glad you came on because not only not only do you have a great personality, you're very good at what you do talking about the game of baseball. And that's not a surprise. uh, Being a former catcher, uh, he's just great at what he does. And I could actually I could see Flash as a manager. I don't think he'd ever do it. I may be wrong, but I could definitely see him as a manager. I don't know. What do you think about that, Flash? Break some news for us? Uh, you know, it's, it's intriguing. You know, I, I love the job that I do right now, but the thought of getting back on the field would be intriguing. The kids are getting a little bit older. They don't want me around. They don't need me around. So there might be uh, maybe a time if somebody was dumb enough to hire me. Oh, it stop. Be, it would be a lot of fun. You, can, you, can you pull the Chip Kelly power play? Maybe the Rockland Boulders might need a new manager one of these days, uh, just saying. Yeah, I like it. I like, <laughs> they have a manager, James Keith, who's won two championships. So I think they're doing fine the last couple of years. Well, well I'll tell you so what. That's an interesting. I like the way you're thinking, Lou. This whole time you've been thinking outside the box. I like it. There you go. I, it was my idea. What are you talking about, Lou? I'm like BASF. I don't make the ideas. I make the ideas you come up with better. Oh, my God. How about that? <laughs> He's quick, ladies and gentlemen. He's quick. Well, you know what? First contract you sign, I get 10%. How's that sound? That does not sound good to me. Uh, my agent gets 5%. And you get 10 How does that work? All right. 1%? Okay. How about a half a half percent? Half a percent. Hey. A shout-out in the introductory press conference. A shout-out in the introductory press conference. I'll give you a free hot dog when you come watch us play. All right. That? that sounds good.
Thanks a lot, buddy. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All Take right. care, Flash. There Thank you. There he goes. John, you John Flaherty, Yes Network analyst and great guy all around. One hell of a model of America. There you go. Uh, great stuff out of him. Always is. There's a spoiler alert just before we move on to our next topic, which will be basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh Coming tomorrow on the yesnetwork.com, tomorrow being Friday because today is Thursday. Uh, in our latest of, you know, our latest BuzzFeed type X things that fit the Yankees for X series, uh, you're going to look at some non tender candidates that might fit the Yankees. And Tyler Flowers and Pedro Alvarez are two of them. Moving on from baseball to basketball, the Nets. Play- part two of the, or actually, this is part one of the all New York sports week. Yeah. Nets, well, it's part two. Part one for us because we Rangers, don't cover hockey. Rangers, Rain- Islanders, Nets, Knicks, and, and then, then Jets, 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 Jets yeah. which we'll get to later. And uh, we have Patricia Traina coming on to talk about the Giants. That's next. But right now we're going to talk basketball with Devin Carpardian of the BrooklynGame.com. What's up, buddy? Oh, not much. Just uh, hanging out with my two favorite Yes Network podcasts. That's <laughs> a stiff competition yes, these days. Yes, yes. It's, like, it's like my mother-in-law says, oh, you're my favorite son-in-law. Well, you only have one daughter, so that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Yeah. You could be her least favorite son-in-law. Then things would be wrong. <laughs> uh, Devin, the Nets, who got out to that uh, horrendous 3-13 and start, including a 1-10 and record on the road, um, have started to turn things around a little bit. Their record at home is 4-3. and three. They've won four straight there. They're playing better defense at home. That's where I want to start with you, the defense. Um, their first three games at Barkley Center, they were giving up over 107. Since then, it's just over 90. What kind of difference, if any, are you seeing on the defensive side for the Nets? I think guys are getting – have a little more sense of where they're supposed to be on the floor. And I think that all starts with – with Ron Ellis Jefferson, because I mean he's a he's a maniac on defense, and as a rookie, he still he's he's as active as can come, but still had a couple of things to learn, a couple of positional things he needed to figure out. Um, so I think that's been a big big change for them. I mean they're turning over the ball a lot. The biggest thing for them defensively is that they're not allowing any second chance points. Um, their their rebound rate is insane for a five man lineup. I don't remember it offhand. It's like eighty five percent or something, which means they're basically not allowing anyone to crash the offensive glass, and they're limiting the ability for guys to get second, third, fourth shots at the basket. Um, so that's been the the biggest thing I can see defensively. Um, being at home the last two games has probably helped a little bit too. Uh, but it's I mean they look a little different. They definitely do. No, we know that their schedule was brutal. The first fifteen games of the season. Which, you know, I'm sure led in part to that record. But this is a team that, you know, it took a game-winning shot from the best player in the universe to beat them in Cleveland on Saturday night. And it's it's taken, you know, other teams three and a half quarters to put them away where where you would think it was a blowout. But that yeah, said, it, you know, that said, you know, we've we've discussed internally about what Lionel Holland said about, you know, we don't have the talent, but if we play hard, you know, and we buy into the system, we, we can compete. Is that what we're seeing with this defensive unit now? You know, you say guys have a better idea of where they're supposed to be. It's guys knowing the system, so now they can go out and operate within that, and we're seeing better results. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, also, you alluded to it before, but the schedule in the first month was just as bad as it could get for a team like this who's, who didn't project to be very good already and then playing, I think, 11 of 16 games in the road, a bunch of them was against playoff teams. But it was not – like, even if, like, imagine you take what they're going to play in December now and put that in November. What is their record? It's probably, they're probably at least three or four wins better. I mean, look, you mentioned it. Like, they, they played toe-to-toe with Cleveland. They almost, they were honestly 
um, the easiest shot in basketball away from beating the Warriors in regulation. And no one has done that this year. I mean, there's certainly moments where you watch this net team and think they're better than five and 13. If you, over the course of the season, they've just had some bad luck. They've had bad execution down the stretch and they've just had a really, really rough schedule. So I think like that plays a part in more than anything else. And then when you have, when you get home and you play a team like Detroit or like Phoenix, who's maybe a 500 squad, but is not the warriors on the road. Um, you know, you see the defense start to kind of gel a little better and you see, um, plays getting made a little more easily, and you see a couple wins. I, I want to piggyback off that point, Devin, and I, I've done my fair share of Nets games doing the pre- and post-game show for Yes, uh, and I see this team almost on a nightly basis. Even when I'm not here in studio, I am watching the game at home. This team never, ever gives up on Lionel Hollins. This team fights. The only, the only, uh, let me take that back. The only game I really saw a give-up was against the Celtics up in Boston. I mean, that was tied at 15 in the first quarter. You blinked your eyes, and the Celtics were up 30. Um, but besides that, I mean, the Nets came home two days later and beat the Celtics at Barclays Center. So a team that gave up wouldn't have come back home and put out that kind of effort against the Celtics. This, you know, Brooke Lopez, I, I want to bring this up with you too because you're in the locker room. He said there used to be a losing mentality in this locker room. That is gone. We believe in each other. We're starting to find out we're, we're all supposed to be on the floor. And is there, I mean, I, I try to stay posit, you know, cautiously optimistic because now they got a couple of wins under their belts. They have the Knicks at the Garden on Friday. If they could beat the Knicks, Devin, they could have a little something going here. And like you said, the December schedule could give them, you know, could help this record out a, a bunch. Yeah, and I think in the, the first few games in November, I think, was the last, other than that Celtics game, you might have seen a little bit of give up. I mean, they lost by 15 to the Bulls. I think it was a 10-point loss to the Grizzlies. They just and the Spurs. Look the Spurs was, yeah, was a well, bad the Spurs, one. I mean, the Spurs but the Spurs are the Spurs, play. for crying out loud. <laughs> they, I don't think the Nets have won a third quarter against the Spurs since Tim Duncan was drafted. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's true, I just, but it's something, it feels like it. Um, so, but, I mean, I think to some sense I think I agree that there's a mentality in the locker room that, that, that they, they don't feel like they're out of every single game. They can see that they're competing. You know, they're, they're still in it with six minutes left. And a lot of stuff at the end of the game, sometimes it's just, it's just the roll of the dice. Sometimes shots go in and sometimes they don't. In the past couple games, they've gone in. And, um, and that, that's provided a boost. So I think, you know, even when there were three and 13 and things looked really, really bad, uh, I think there was some sense that like, look, this is a really, really rough start. Um, we played very closely. We have a lot of talent. We have, in theory, the talent that can win you basketball games. You have scorers like Brooke Lopez. You have, you know, Rondé playing defense. You have Thaddeus who kind of fits in everywhere. That You have all these little components that can make a winning team. And you just have to wait for the results to come. But that, that same moment in time, Devin, that same moment in time, 3-13, and 13, going into the next game in the pregame press conference with Lionel Hollins, he basically flat out said, we are what we are. We don't have LeBron. We don't have Steph. And at the time, you know, all over Twitter and in the minds of people everywhere uh, in Netsland, if, if you want to be completely honest about it, we're like, wow, that's kind of some brutal honesty there by the head coach and – uh, is this what is this what we could expect the rest of the season? I mean, are we going to have three and thirteen stretches every every sixteen games? I mean, that was really eye opening for me. Now, is he right? I mean, when you when it boils down to it, Brooke Lopez is is a great player, but is he LeBron? 
David Lee was a great player for the Knicks too, five years ago. I, I but... mean, what what did you think when you heard that? I mean, you were sitting right there. So what did you think? What were your thoughts? Well, I thought Lionel, Lionel Hans has never been one to shy away from being honest in kind of a weird way. You I think? And, and I see both sides of it. On the one hand, he's absolutely right. The Nets are not a particularly talented team. You mentioned Brooke Lopez. Like, Brooke Lopez is what he is. I don't think he's going to turn into a pick-and-roll defensive savant in the next two days because we've seen him for nine years. We know what he is. Thaddeus Young, to the same extent, is a talented player, but he's, he's not LeBron. He's not Russell Westbrook. You know, um, the, the, the funny thing about that, and there, there are two parts to it, is the, the younger guys aren't what they are yet. Like Shane Larkin, for the first two years of his career, was not what he could become. Thomas Robinson was not what he could become. You know, Rondé Hollis Jefferson is obviously not what he's going to be. Um, so I, there's, there's like a certain, there's a weird dichotomy between like, yes, they're not that good enough, but the job is still to develop and, and create a culture with your young players. And, and on the second note, and, and I think I've said this to you before, maybe some, somebody else, um, you know, your job as a coach is to manage your expectation for victory. So, like, say they go into the game against the Warriors with a 10% chance of winning, but if Lionel puts in the work, it becomes a 15% chance. His job is to manage that 5%. And whether or not that means staying up all night, I don't think it does. It still comes off as very strange for a coach to be saying, you know, almost giving up, saying, look, I, I can't analyze it. Like, we're just not good enough. We can't, we can't, we can't learn from it. There's always a learning experience. And that, that was a little surprising. Well, let, me, let me ask you this with that said, Devin. You know, competing hard and, and moral victories and whatever you want to call it and, and this and that, that's great if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are a very young football <laughs> team, and, you know, they, they lose more than they win, but there's times where you can see, okay, that's great. And it's great when you're Jameis Winston and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who may be exceeding expectations, but, you know, there's going to be a learning curve because he's a rookie quarterback playing in an offense that's not terribly dynamic. And I hate to use two football teams as an example, but they're both very good. There's six out of the, the nine guys in the rotation are veterans to flat-out old. I mean, Joe Johnson's been in the league for as long as I've been out of college, and he is what he is. Brooke Lopez is what he is. Thaddeus Young is what he is. Totally. So, yes, there's plenty of time for RHJ to develop. There's plenty of time for Shane Larkin to, to prove that he's better than he's shown. There's still plenty of time even for Thomas Robinson to prove that he was worth the number five pick or even a pick at all when he was taken out of college. But when you have one or two of those guys and the rest of the core of your team is what it is, in managing that dichotomy, how can you just flat out come out and say that knowing what are the old guys going to get out of that? I agree. And that was a puzzling, that was a puzzling part of it to me. It was like, you know, if, if, you're not try, if you're not showing your team, at least in the media, that you're trying to win at all costs when there are guys like Joe Johnson who have never made, who, he's never won a title, Brooke Lopez never made it out of the second round of the playoffs, you have guys who like want to win. It can come off as a little strange, but but again, but this is, this is the whole thing about the Nets is that they were not expected to compete this year anyway. Like the expectations for this team were already at, if not zero, very close to zero, and certainly closer to zero than contending for a championship. So I think that the expectations there were already kind of understood. Um, but like the the fact that like Lionel is kind of openly saying, you know, if we can't compete, we can't compete, and that's that. It's part of why I think. Like, I mean, first of all, I think Joe Johnson is gone at the end of the year no matter what. But I think they'll also maybe try to look at maybe in February if some team has an offer for them that, and Joe can find his way onto a contending team, I think they'll, they'll consider it. Devin, uh, before we let you go, uh, on Sunday, uh, Kobe uh, announced he was saying bye-bye. Um, 
after 20 years, just a dynamic player. And I saw something on Facebook. I usually, you know, hate going through timelines and having, um, you know, the videos eat up all my data on my <laughs> data plan. But this, 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 what I saw the other day, someone took the time to, it was kind of like a morphing. Michael Jordan would start the move and then they would slowly dissolve into Kobe finishing it. And it was eerie how similar uh, Kobe, his, he, how he modeled his moves after what Jordan did. And to tie that in, Reggie Miller was on with Dan Patrick earlier in the week. And Reggie Miller isn't very close with Kobe anymore. I learned that. But he said early on in his career, they were tight because Miller was trying to bring him along as a young player. And he said that dude, when guys were in the club or just getting back to the hotel from the club, that guy was in the gym. And watching, and I told you about that tape I saw, because watching that tape and watching the, the morph from Jordan to Kobe, you could tell how much he worked. The first thing I want you to just talk about is his legacy and what he meant to the NBA, and then your story about Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, who's really making an impact for the Nets this year, and uh, his favorite player was Kobe, so go ahead. Let her rip. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I, I, I think there's always, Kobe's a very divisive player because a lot of people think he's the second company of Jordan. A lot of people think, well, he imitates Jordan a lot, but he wasn't nearly that good, and he relied a lot on Shaq or Pau Gasol or whoever else he happened to be playing against. I mean, no matter what, the, the thing about him is that he is probably the biggest star, just in terms of the awareness in the league, that this league has seen since Jordan. I mean, he's the number one guy in China. I mean, fans flock to see Kobe. Like, the Lakers, I, last time I checked this, the Lakers were the only team that had a, an, a, a road attendance over 100%. Like, they sell out every night because people want to see him. He's just such an, in, like an in, interesting and important um, part of NBA history. Um, e- even if you think he shot too much, or even if you think, you know, he wasn't as efficient as he should have been. And, you know, even if you think he didn't play well in a lot of, as well as people think he is, he's still important to the NBA as a legacy. And I think the fact that you mentioned that COVID to Jordan video, because I've seen that video too, is important to that because when you see stuff like that, it makes you look at the NBA as like a lineage, like people passing down moves and tricks. And, you know, uh, it it reminds me of, I I talked to Rondé earlier this year uh, about, about uh, Joe Johnson, how Joe Johnson is t- teaching him stuff about offense and how you're passing down these tricks that Joe Johnson learned from Penny Hardaway and Penny Hardaway learned from somebody else. It, it kind of creates this, this interesting dynamic of the NBA as like a, a generational family. And, and to your point uh, about Rondé, when, when we talked to him about Kobe in the locker room, I mean, he, we, we kind of walked up to him and he looked and he's like, yeah, I know this. Like he, he knew like he'd already started to like feel very strongly because Kobe was such an, like, an icon to him. Like, imagine being a high school kid in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is one of the most dangerous uh, townships in the country, uh, moving from house to house. Uh, Nets Daily had up a great story today about Ron Ellis Jefferson's wife, you know, lived in about 15 houses growing up. And having the only thing that you kind of look up to as that kid is, be, is, is the greatness of Kobe Bryant. And then five years later, you're posing with him in a locker room because you've made it to, to the NBA level where he is. Like, that. It, there's an emotion to that that I can't really, I don't think any of us who are on the other side will ever really understand. And, um, you know, when we talked to Rondé, he was very, he was very obviously like, emotional about it. Like he, he was, he could, you could tell that Kobe had left such an impact on his life, you know, that, that he, he was able to 
kind of be who he was as an NBA player and have the drive to get to the next level, partially because he saw a guy who went to a high school 25 minutes down the road and got to the level he wants to be at. It was a really touching thing, and it kind of puts in perspective to me like the importance of having those guys you know, to, to, to look at, even if they're not, you know, even if they're not Michael Jordan or they're not, you know, the greatest player of all time, having like a legend from your area, it's just, it, it was, it was striking to me how important it was to Rondé. And I think that's something that can get lost in a lot of people talking about how important Kobe might be in terms of, you know, the, the, the statistics or, uh, or the championships or anything like that. What it comes down to is how he can impact the next generation of players. And at least on Ronde, it was a pretty big one. I was, I was going to mention the Philly connection. If you hadn't though, that, you know, I know Kobe has not necessarily been the most, I'm from Philly guy in his career and kind of has, has almost poo-pooed that, that heritage as well. But, you know, growing up, like you said, 20 minutes away from where Kobe grew up and seeing that, and, you know, Rasheed Wallace is from Philadelphia. And there, it's not like Philadelphia is a one-and-done basketball town either. There's a lot of guys that could have fit that role, but Kobe was certainly the most dynamic of the bunch. Sure. My thought is with Kobe's retirement, I, I don't know how, how you see the irony of this. For a couple of years now, a lot of people – that I've talked to, they like to compare Kobe and Derek Jeter based on, you know, their, their icons in their sport. They've played for one team, the glamour team their whole life, the Yankees, the Lakers. Their careers have taken similar parallel trajectories. Kobe's started a little bit later than Jeter's in terms of, of, of when the, the championship run happened because he had to wait until, you know, Shaq got to L.A. and everything. But point being, quite ironic how their careers are now winding down in the same way where – they have a good season. Injuries kind of creep in, and now you know Kobe's having the worst season of his career. Jeter had the worst season of his career in 2014, unfortunately, as they come to the end. And not only that, but Jeter started the trend of retiring on social media, and now Kobe <laughs> went to Jeter's website to announce his retirement. And you know, it's going to bring out the thing. Somebody I saw on Twitter posted Kobe's poem should have been "Roses are red, carnations are pink. It's time to retire because now I stink," and, and other <laughs> stupid things like that. And you know, it's. It's unfair because Kobe Bryant at what he is now is still better than 50% of the NBA, if not more. But it, it's just – I don't know how you see that. I know you're, you're a Mets fan, so I know Derek Jeter may be a, you know, that Red Sox hate in your heart. But it, it's kind of an interesting parallel to see how now those two almost actually have come full circle in terms of career arc in different sports. Oh, totally, on different sides of the country. I will, I will disagree at the point. I don't think Kobe's better than half the league right now. And, and, and for all the emotional stuff and all the, like – this is what I'm talking about with Rondé a few minutes ago. He's ter- Kobe's terrible now, and it's almost like it's partially sad and partially just kind of there's a macabre humor about it, just like watching him fire up 18-footers over and over. Well, he's averaging uh, more field goal attempts than points yeah. per game, or at oh, least he yeah. was as of earlier this week. Yeah, he's breaking every statistical record for negativity. Like he's, I think he's got the lowest field goal percentage with X amount of attempts, lowest three-point percentage with X amount of attempts. Like he, he's, just, he's awful now. But the thing is, the Lakers want him to be awful because then they have a better chance of keeping their draft pick, which is going to go to the Sixers if it's not in the top three. So my thought is Kobe's last parting gift to his team is letting them draft his replacement. Perfect. Fair point. That's an interesting way to look yes, at it. Yes, absolutely. And how much money yeah. is he making this year? $25 million. Well, he hey, should I'm be. Hey, he should be putting up 25 shots a game. <laughs> Come on. Hey, look, man, they, they signed. Look, think about this. Think about how much money Kobe Bryant has made the Lakers. He's probably a bargain at that price. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like, and and it was his, you know, uh, you know, Price is Right parting gift. And here's what you've won—a twenty-five million dollar final year contract. Okay, where do I sign? <laughs> well, you know, but then you can look at the other side of it too. And if you look at other sports, like 
you know, David Price just got $217 million from the Red Sox on seven years. And what's his contract going to look like when he's 37? And what does CeCe Sabathia's contract right. look like in this? And right. it was Kobe as a perfect example. Kobe was the best yeah. player on the planet until LeBron James showed up and was still in the top five, you know, for the last decade after. And now he's, he's, a, he's a $25 million lawn ornament. Okay, so let me throw this at you, Devin, before we let you go, just really quick. Uh, I think Michael Jordan's last contract with the Bulls, if memory serves me correct, it was $33 million. It was a one-year $33 million contract. Um, Kobe has 25 this year. If Bill Russell was still around today, (laughs) how much would would Bill be asking for for his last contract? Oh, man. Well, I think you're going to see that with whatever happens with LeBron because – the way the, the NBA agreement is structured is the smartest way is basically to keep taking one opt year outs deal or yeah, bigger two, and bigger deals. two years with I mean, an opt out. Yeah, absolutely. By, by the end of his con- career, if the cap keeps going up the way it's going up, like he's probably going to be making 45, 50 million dollars a year. Oh and it's going to be, God. it's going to be reasonable given the cap. Like that's, that's, there's so much money coming into the NBA with the TV deal. This upcoming year, like we're not ready for it. Like guys are going to get twelve million dollar deals, and you're going to think, "What is going on?" But ten years ago, that guy would have gotten a four million dollar. Well, well, hold on now. Jerome James got six million a year for six years. And Yo, he... No, hold on. Jerome right. James that is an outlier because thing. Isaiah Thomas is playing with monopoly money in well, his own mind. I mean, <laughs> golly, are we going to have a guy that's averaging under a point and under a rebound, making twelve million dollars a year? Chris, I know you're a Knicks fan, so just be happy that Isaiah Thomas is not going to be the GM of the Knicks over the next ten years. <laughs> when when the cap okay. goes up, just be, all right. Just don't don't even don't even go. Just be thankful. It's we just passed Thanksgiving. Just be uh-huh. thankful. And net fans, <laughs> net fans, I may be a Knicks fan, and I've said it before. It's not like Devin is blowing up my spot. <laughs> I I do root for the Nets to do well. And I've said that before, too. So just, just a friendly reminder from your Uncle Chris. Devin, <laughs> Devin, it was a pleasure. Broccolino was awesome. Uh, it's supposed to air before the Nick game on Friday. So I hope people could check that out on the Nets pregame show, which starts at 630. Uh, Big Bob Lorenz will be hosting that. And Devin and I will be, a, will be featured players in the pregame show. So. Starring Bob Lorenz, featuring Devin Carpetian, <laughs> Chris Shear, and the Saturday Night Live band. <laughs> Thank you, Don Pardo, from, for coming back from the dead. Devin, as always, tremendous job. We appreciate it. And if you uh, like basketball, just basketball in general, uh, and you love the Nets, or you don't. If you just like reading uh, really intriguing and funny stuff, go to thebrooklyngame.com and check out what Devin has to offer. Always do it because it's, it's a great time when you get there. So thanks, Devin. We appreciate it. Always appreciate talking to you guys. Take care. All right, right, talk to you soon, man. Later. There he goes. Devin Carr, Paradian. I always wondered, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the whole LeBron thing. I always wondered, like, especially with baseball with no salary cap, with these guys getting towards the end of their career and they're looking for paydays or this happens or teams – you know, if teams don't want to make a long-term financial commitment, why not just sign like a one-year fifty million dollars? Like if you're Josh Hamilton, team can't make a long-term commitment, or this or that, or you know, pay me one year fifty million dollars, and we'll keep going with that. You'll get the same amount of money in the end, right? Isn't that the kind of that's how the Yankees and we talked about this? That's how they, they now look. It wasn't thirty million, but Corota. Yeah, you know it was twelve million. If, then he did well, and he got a raise, if, and he got another raise. I, I've mentioned it to you, and I mentioned it. I've mentioned it all along. You've said it on here. If if the Yankees gave Kuroda a three year, forty five million dollar contract thing. or whatever it was that he ended up making at the beginning, people would have been like, "Wow, Kuroda!" But on one year contracts for what he made, 
seemed to work out pretty well. It did. Now, granted, you know, the Dodgers signed Brandon McCarthy for four years, $48 million, and they paid him $12 million to tweet funny stuff over pretty the last much. year. Pretty but, much. you know, there's a give and take there. So, again, why not? You know, one year, $50 million. The guy has Tommy John surgery. Well, he's not going to make $50 million next year, but then the other, the, his team or another team isn't on the hook for 30 because they signed him for five years, 150 Lou, let's move on to football. And, uh, you know, we had Art Stapleton on this program a couple of times uh, from the record, and I, I tried to have Art talk me off a ledge. And I, I'm deciding to go another route this time. I, 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 these be- Have you found a slightly lower ledge well, to jump off of? Well, maybe, um, because the, the entire division stinks. But I'm going to bring in another one of my counselors. She's... Uh, Another beat writer for the Giants for Inside Football, the Journal Inquirer, the Sports Exchange, and Bleacher Report. It's Patricia Trena. Thank you for joining us, Patricia. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. No problem. Let's just jump right into the division and how bad it is and how no one wants it. I mean, the way you've seen this progress during the season, are you shocked, especially with the Giants, like, you know, fourth quarter failing pretty much all season long? Are you shocked that they're not at least three games ahead at this point? I am. I mean, I, I can't quite understand why they can't finish games. I, I'm still trying to figure out. Here it is. It's, what, four or five days after that Washington game, and I can't figure out how they could come out so flat. I mean, the division is the taking. How do you not go and, and just go for the gusto? I, I, I don't get it. Well, missing the interior of your offensive line in the Redskin game when Jeff Schwartz goes down, I mean, that has something to do with it. I, when, when Schwartz went down, I looked at that like in my head and I said, all right, this is not going to be good. With Schwartz in there, they couldn't establish a running game, and that kind of is detrimental to Eli Manning and the rest of the offense, and these are problems we talked about with Art at the beginning of the season before the season even started. What can you tell us about the offensive line moving forward against a very tough Jets defensive line this weekend? Well, that's going to be a key matter, and, and just just to backtrack a little bit, I'm not so sure that losing Schwartz was was the reason why they lost that game. I mean, they had been all all season long with that but to to spin ahead uh, to the Jets game, some good news, some bad news, depending on your perspective. It looks like they're going to get Justin Pugh back. He had, of course missed a couple games with a concussion. It looks like. Is on the road to recovery, so that's good. He, of course, has been dealing with the ankle sprain. Now, however, we'll probably be missing Marshall Newhouse, their right tackle. And, uh, you know, some people might say, okay, that's a good play last week, but um, now who do you plug in there? Do you go with the rookie, Bobby Hart, who played well at guard in, in relief for Schwartz, or do you just shuffle that line around and do you move maybe Pew out to the, to, uh, the tackle spot? And put John Jerry in at uh, left guard, which which might make that interior a little you know less effective. So a lot of decisions for head coach Tom Coughlin to make, and it's going to be interesting to see how they hold up because that Jets Jets defensive line is really really a stout line, and it's going to be a big challenge for them. One of the things that makes the Jets' defensive line so so strong is that they also have a strong secondary. I mean, I know Darrell Revis's situation is fluid, but with the Giants. The way their their weapons on the outside haven't been such weapons, how much is that pass rush going to magnify you know the Giants' offensive line problems? Knowing that if they get to the quarterback, Eli's going to have to make quick decisions. There might not be anything out there for him, and not only that, the Jets might have more out there for him than the Giants do. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very dangerous when your passing offense comes down to one guy, which is how it kind of worked out last week with the Giants. Um, Eli Manning targeted Odell Beckham 18 times, which is, which is quite a lot. And if you're having to rely on that one guy and the defense takes that one guy away and now you've got a pass rush going like Washington was able to do last week against the Giants, it can make for a long afternoon. And it's, it's, it's you know, hopefully Ben McAdoo and Tom Coughlin have a few things up their sleeves, but uh, the matchups right now are just... Patricia, going forward here, uh, we're looking at the schedules for, for the rest of this division, the Giants, the Eagles, Redskins, and the Cowboys. Lou and I have uh, made our predictions based on these last five games, and we each have the Redskins winning the division. At, I have them at 9-7. and seven. Lou has them at 8-8. Eight and eight. I, have, I have the Giants finishing 7-9, and nine, uh, the Eagles at 5-11, and 11, and the Cowboys at 4-12. and 12. Uh, right now, I'm going to put you on the spot, and I, I apologize for doing that, but how do you see this division shaking out with five games to go? Oh, wow. I think you're pretty close there. I think Washington has the best shot at winning this division. Giants would basically have to win four out of their last five games, I think, in order to have a shot at uh, at winning the division. And they're going to, of course, need Washington to lose somewhere along the line. The Giants have the tougher schedule. You know, they have Miami on Monday night, which you would like to think they're going to win that game. And then you have Carolina on a short week, which is, you know, not going to be an easy game, regardless if it was a short week or a long week. And then they have Minnesota. And, um, and then you're, then, um, the Eagles who always give them a hard time. So I think the Giants have an uphill battle and I could see them possibly even falling to third place. I mean, wow. I, you know, a seven and nine would not be out of the question. It would be a little bit bit better than the six and ten record that they had last year. Well, I was trying to be I optimistic. Seven and nine being... <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be optimistic at seven and nine. Yeah, I, I think I think you're actually being realistic, optimistic. Okay. I, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's look. I'm normally a very optimistic person, and I like to think that it can get done. But you know, realistically speaking, there's just so much. I mean, the, the fact that they can't step up, that they have to be told, look, step up, you know, put in the extra time. I mean, if you have to be told that, something's wrong. And, and you know, the division's on the line, and you want, do you, how bad do you want it? And, and that's a question that I think they're still trying to figure out, just how bad do they really want it? They say they want it, but saying they want it and, and doing what it takes to show that they want it is two different things. Well, you're, you're with the team all the time. So I want to throw this out at you and you tell me if I'm wrong. My, my partner Lou here and the producer of this podcast is a big Eagles fan. I, it's obvious the past couple weeks, it looks like that team, and I'm not saying professionals just quit, but let's just put it in air quotes. It looks like they quit on Chip Kelly. Something in my gut tells me, you know, it's not about the Giants. They will never... It's it's just the past couple of years with Tom Coughlin. They never quit on the guy. It's a matter of talent and a matter of execution. And it just seems like, especially late in games this year, that is where the Giants are lacking, especially on the defensive side of the ball. It's a Steve Spagnuolo has done a great job, but it's been bend and don't break. And Patricia, it's it's just been breaking late in games. And you really can't blame them for that, but. I, I think the Giants and Eagles are polar opposites. I think they've given up on Kelly, but they'll never give up on Coughlin. What do you think about that? 
I, I think you're you're onto something. I don't think necessarily they've given up on Coughlin, but after a while, you know, I, I made this this comparison, and I'm going to throw it out here uh, to you guys. It's like when you're a kid and you your parents tell you to do something, and you listen to them, and you listen to them, and they keep harping on the same point. And then as you go, as you get older, you tend to maybe hear the words, but not listen as much because you have your own thoughts. You you know you see how things are going out there. You're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, yeah, mom and dad, you you know you're out there, but I'm out in the world, and this is how the world is, and it's different from when you were out there. And suddenly it's like, you know, how much are you really listening? And you know, I, I think they they respect Coughlin. I think they want to play for him. I think they like him. But at some point, I just wonder if they, they really are truly listening to what he's saying. Because if they were, I think it would be a lot different than what we've been seeing from them. That is actually a point I have been <laughs> championing for almost two years now. And, and being an Eagles fan, it's easy for me to sit on the other side and do that. But there comes a point where critical mass happens. And it happened with the Atlanta Braves and Bobby Cox eventually. And, and it happens with yeah. every coach at it's some point. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah, It's unfortunate, but it's yeah. true. But but now that le- that leads to this, and and this is this is the one thing that I wonder about as an Eagles fan with, with the way their their team is going right now. This division is still well up for grabs, and at five and six they are in the lead. They're technically the Redskins are in the lead based on tiebreakers, but they are in in a virtual tie for the lead. Are they better off not making the playoffs at this point because it's a big difference between? getting a really good draft pick and, and getting somebody that may help out, or God forbid they make a deep run and they get to the conference championship game and then they lose and then they end up at 28 and nothing changes. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're, you're in this league, the, the goal is to win. You don't want to just throw away the season just for the sake of getting a, a, a draft pick. I mean, that's kind of this is not the NBA, you know, counterproductive. No, <laughs> yeah. But but with that said, you know, if you know that your chances are gone, then I, I wouldn't shock me if teams are doing that. But, you know, in the case of the NFC East, um, are indeed still in the race. So I don't think at this point anybody is throwing away the season or conceding that it's done. Hey, let's go for the draft pick. You'd like to think that's the case, but, you know, we'll see how it, how it plays out. It's going to be interesting. All right. Last thing for me before we let you go, because I know we have to get you to uh, the locker room to uh... – Answer, uh, ask some questions to those Giants about this Jets game this weekend. But it was – I just want to bring up the story of how we kind of came across each other on Twitter because I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> we're, not, we're, not yeah. too, we're not too far apart in age, and I'm not going to give our ages out, but we're not too far apart. And I, I – there was something – I forget how it came up, but I think it was my Twitter uh, description. I, could, I said I can name all 50 states in under 30 seconds. And this is a true statement. And it all stems back to what, Patricia? Tell, tell the people what it stems back to. It all stems back to a song that you learned in grammar school and I learned in grammar school <laughs> called 50 Nifty United States. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I thought I was the only one. And then Sarah Kustak, our sideline reporter for the Nets, same thing. She could name all 50 states in under 30 seconds. So I asked her, same thing, 50 nifty United States. So fifth grade glee club, yes, I was in glee club. It was pretty much a requirement, so I had to do it. 
Um, mm-hmm. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. But yeah, Patricia and I. We could... almost we almost have had the same music teacher. I'm telling you. I know you went to school. I think in the same county as I did. Yes, so Mrs. Treziak. Mrs. Treziak. Yeah, Mrs. Treziak was probably our mm-hmm. teachers. Absolutely. It, it's just, it was just weird. And I had to get you on the show. Uh, you cover the Giants. You do a great job. Yeah. Lou and I wanted to get oh, you on, yeah. and we really appreciate it. And uh, go get some great stuff in the locker room, and we look forward to reading it later. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate you having me on. All right, Patricia. We'll talk to you down the line. Okay. Bye-bye. There she goes, Patricia Trena. She she writes for a lot of publications. She's a good follower, great follower on Twitter as well. Uh, She writes for Inside Football, as I mentioned, Journal Inquirer, Sports Exchange, and Bleacher Report. Um, And on Twitter, she is at Patricia underscore Trena, T-R-A-I-N-A. Good stuff. If she goes 120 miles south or so into that locker room and wants to ask a question, can it be, <laughs> can you just go away already? Can it be that one? All right. Can, well, can since, it be that one? Since it, this is our last topic of, of the podcast, let's, let's talk about your team. I want you, it's around the Festivus holiday season. I want you right now to air your grievances. It's nice and warm around the dumpster fire right now. About Chip Kelly. Look, okay. And the Eagles. Mm, go ahead. Go. Y- I'm putting my it's, mic down. Professionals don't quit. Bull bleep. Professionals don't quit. <laughs> I'm going to invoke something we, we talked about earlier. Something we've talked about. Something Devin has talked about. I'm going to go back to the Nets. I'm going to go back to Lionel Hollins. And Lionel flat out said, you know, we are who we are. We don't necessarily have the... The talent of other teams. Don't but have Steph. Don't have LeBron. Yeah, we try hard. Blah 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 blah. And that's that's coach speak for like I'm getting fired in six months, so I'm riding out the gravy train. Let's be honest, because the Nets, if they win 25 games, everybody's going. It, it's house cleaning time and start over. Chip Kelly tried to do that with a team that won 20 games in his first two seasons and made the playoffs, hosted a home playoff game in his first one, and it didn't work. And my phrase, and I think I said it on here a few weeks ago, and I've said it to you, is I said definitely said it on Facebook. You can't come in, cook a wonderful meal with what's in the pantry two, three, four times, then demand, you know what, I need to shop for the groceries and cook me up a poop sandwich. You can't do it. The world does not work that way. Football does not work that way. Didn't you invoke my dad and say chicken salad at a chicken, you know what? I think on I did. Facebook? Yeah, I, think I think I, I did. Saw that. Um, Sam Bradford might be back this week. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> my gastroenteritis might come back oh, this week, God. so I'm not looking oh, forward my. to that. Um, oh, my God. That was look, tremendous. <laughs> I've always said, you know, I, I, I'll praise the in chip we trust mantra. And his system worked a little bit the first year, and it worked a little bit last year. A and, bit. and that's great, but systems work when the people operating the system work, the people operating the system don't work. You know, you have to, it's like, you have to be smarter than the machine. You know what I mean? What do you know about the machine? Right. You have to be smarter than the machine to operate it. Okay. Are the Eagles players smarter than the machine? No. Quite frankly, no, they're not. We have, I say we, I shouldn't say we. I hate that. The Eagles have two former Pro Bowl cornerbacks playing safety. 
and might be trotting out the worst starting quarterback tandem in the National Football Conference. And don't forget about DeMarco Murray. This guy's one of the main reasons Dallas had their run last year. And Dallas had a great offensive line. And also, the Eagles system, you know, it, you look at, the, look at the Broncos from years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was Orlando's Gary. It was Terrell Davis. It was a different Mike Anderson. It was a different right. Mike every year because this was the system. This is what the line does. Find somebody to fit that system, and anybody can have success. That formula works. Bill Belichick has been doing it with Tom Brady and anybody else every they can year. sign for 20 years every in year. New England. Deion Lewis. Yeah. Deion Lewis, Corey Dillon is a reclamation project. Brandon Bolden, James White, Shane Vereen. Uh, who's his starting wide receivers last week were the Water Boy and the Legarrett, guy Legarrett Blunt. Yeah, were the Water Boy and the guy who watches the Water Boy clean up. Got the paddles out, resuscitated that guy. He has a Super Bowl ring. For I crying mean, out loud. it's the proof is in the pudding that that it does work. Sam Bradford, who's about as mobile as a dead car, <laughs> is. Is running your offense. You have a running back who's a one-cut-and-go guy dancing Dance. behind the line, and everybody criticized Shady McCoy for, what's he doing dancing? Why is he dancing? This, that, the other thing. You know what? DeMarco Murray's doing the same thing. Yeah, you know why? Because that's what they have to do. Yeah. That's not the way. That, that's didn't, not their game, but that's Sproles, how they have to play. Didn't Sproles flourish in Chip Kelly's system last year? He did, because he's that type of dynamic And guy. I, I picked him up in my fantasy draft, which I'm 1-11, by the way. Uh, See, I'm ten and two, so one and eleven, and, and I, had, I don't have Darren Sproles. Yeah, I did. I went after Sproles. I went after Demarius Thomas, and uh, Peyton Manning turned out to be, you know, Archie Bunker. I just had a lot of I just had a lot of flyers pay off. That's how I'm ten and two in my fantasy league. <sighs> I mean, my my starting wide receivers for much of the season were Emmanuel Sanders, Jeremy Macklin, and or Allen Robinson. I'm you think my two, so. you think my string of uh, making three straight championship games are over? I think so. I think first and Ted and behind the steel curtain and every other bad team name, you're you're in that group from that commercial. Let, but here's the point about the Eagles: is the players are not. Chip Kelly went out. Yeah, Chip Kelly went out and got the guys he wanted after succeeding with the guys he didn't want. He got rid of the guys he didn't want, the distractions of this, that. They wanted to keep Macklin. He took more money. But he got rid of Shady. He got rid of D-Jax. He got rid of everybody. And now the team is a dumpster fire. There is no other fall guy. And the media is tired of Chip. Chip's tired of the media. He's tired of the situation, but he likes the NFL life. If he bolts for Tennessee, the college or, or, or the NFL team, Nobody's going to be upset. It, it, it's not it, what he tried to do didn't work, flat out. What he tried to do didn't work. And last week when Nolan Carroll broke his foot, my buddy texted me. He goes, "Oh, good. Maybe now someone else who can actually play cornerback will play cornerback." Oof. That's how bad it is. Is that the state of the team? That's the state of the team. That you know, we're just going to keep running him out there because he's our guy. It doesn't matter if he's any good. He's the guy. That's our system. Systems four and seven, Chip. Yep. Well, since we're going to drop the mics in a couple of minutes, I want to give you the epic mic drop moment of the week. I think I'm going to start doing this on a weekly basis on the podcast. I think it's a good idea. Uh, and this, uh, this week's award goes to Dr. Everett Piper. He's the president at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Rowdy Everett Piper. Yeah. He, uh, this past week, um, this is his words in a 
letter he put out to the campus uh, students. This past week, I actually had a student come forward after university chapel service and complain because he felt victimized by a sermon on the topic of 1 Corinthians 13. It appears that this young scholar felt offended because a homily on love made him feel bad for not showing love. In his mind, the speaker was wrong for making him and his peers feel uncomfortable. He goes on to say, I'm not making this up. Our culture has actually taught our kids to be this self-absorbed and narcissistic. Anytime their feelings are hurt, they are victims. Anyone who dares challenge them and thus makes them feel bad about themselves is a hater, a bigot, an oppressor, and a victimizer. And then he went on for a couple more paragraphs. I wasn't, I'm not going to bore you with everything, but his last line is the epic mic drop moment of the week on The Chris Sheeran Show. This is not a daycare. This is a university. Bravo, Dr. Everett Piper. Hold on, hold on. Bravo. Let me, let me do it. There it is. The mic drop. That's the Chris Sheeran Show for this week. For Lou DiPietro, I'm Chris Sheeran. We'll see you next time.